their sins, the very sins that brought them into Babylon in the first place. But here's the sad news. After they're released from captivity in Babylon, what do you think Israel does? They sin again. That's just what happens. All of history, man falls short of all that God desires of us, and it stops us from having an intimate relationship with him. I was thinking this week, uh, looking out my window, I have another story about Tyler. And I have to tell you, I realize, especially today, I'm going to have a bunch of Tyler stories. I do have another child. She's just not as goofy as Tyler. So I have these better stories to tell. Uh, he was probably in high school, and he and three buddies decided we have a, a river down, part of the Trinity River, down off the side of our yard there. And they knew a friend who lived sort of towards Benbrook, and they realized we could float on the river and get to our buddy's house in Benbrook. So, of course, they called him up so he would be ready for them, as if they were going to make it. Then they ran to Academy and bought... $2 floats for each of them. <laughs> These little yellow floats. Well, I was all for it. I saw this as a Huck Finn adventure. And Ted was a nervous wreck. Even though if they stood in the water, it would probably come to here on them. But he just didn't want them to do it. He was nervous. Something was going to happen. So he, like, paced our backyard the whole time. They ran down, hopped on these little rafts, and started down the river. And I was all excited. Well, what was so funny we hadn't thought about was, you know, sound carries on water. And so we could hear everything they said <laughs> for, I don't know how far. We would just laugh and we could hear them, watch out, go here, turn, watch out for this. Well, then at this one place, you would hear them saying, oh, watch out for the, oh, now watch out, oh. Four times, four times that happens. About 30 minutes later, they come walking up the hill. They're drenched. They're carrying their little, little yellow rafts that are about, you know, all torn up. But this was the interesting thing to us. They all had their rafts popped on the exact same branch. <laughs> And so that's why whoever got the rep up would wait for the next guy coming down. And the current would just take that raft right to that branch. They'd say, what's that branch? You know, pop. And so here they are. They're rafts. They didn't get to finish their journey. And they're very wet. And my point in that is this, that we're all on a journey. When we're here living on earth, we want to know our creator. And our hope is, you know, I can create my own raft, I'll be good, I'll do these things right, I go to church, I do the right thing, and we're going to make it to the end of our destination, and soon we find that we are stopped, that we can't move forward. And then we look around and realize, hey, nobody else can either. We are all stopped by the same branch, and the branch's name is sin. How can a holy creator have communion with his unholy creation? Look on your verse sheet at Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
1 John 1.8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And the good news is, our sin came as no surprise to God. So at the beginning of the very beginning, God had a plan to bring about the salvation of mankind. And Israel was part of that plan. We read this in, uh, we read last week, turn with me again to Isaiah 41. Verse 8. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. We learned last week that Abraham was called to be a father of a new nation that was set apart to know the one true God. And they were to point a lost and an idolatrous world to this one true God. They were to be a blessing to all the people on the whole earth. And in Romans, you read in your homework about the privileges of the nation that began with Abraham. In Romans, we learn theirs was the adoption as sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants of God's blessings, the receiving of the law from Moses before they entered the promised land. There's the temple worship and the very presence of God among them. There's the promises of uh, land and blessing and descendants. And we know from our Old Testament history that they were witnesses of the miracles in Egypt, the plagues that came to Egypt, the passing over of the death angel, and the dying of the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Theirs was the deliverance, the parting of the Red Sea, the parting of the Jordan River, the miracle of manna from heaven, the miracle of God being their guide in the wilderness, in a pillar of cloud, in a pillar of fire at night. And we forget about this miracle, but I just read about it again. The miracle that their clothing and their sandals never wore out for 40 years. I think this is where my dad gets his clothes. We have pictures of my dad when I'm like 20, and he's in, now when I take a picture of him, he's in the exact same sweatshirts, Hope College. Here's what Moses said before they entered the land of promise. Look on your verse sheet, Deuteronomy. He says, I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, and that may you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice. Hold fast to him. I love this last line. For the Lord is your life. That's how they began. That was the call to Abraham. They were to know the one true God. 
Now, after they entered the promised land, and Moses is gone, gone to be with God, we have Joshua leading the people, and Joshua is about to die, and let's see what he reminds these same people. Joshua said, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And the people answered, well, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said, well, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he's been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And so now Isaiah is reminding Judah of the words of their ancestors hundreds of years before. In chapter 43, verse 10. He repeats what they said to Joshua. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor there will be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Israel has two callings that we see in these verses. First of all, they are to be witnesses of the one true God. Secondly, they are to be his servant. God calls them his servant and proclaim the one true God. So they were chosen for the purpose of believing and demonstrating God's utter uniqueness as sole deity alone. The eternal self-existing God, he had no predecessor, he has no successor, only he can predict the future. The gods of these other nations can't do that. Only he, verse 13, has been here from the ancient of days. The gods of other nations are formed and reformed at when, whenever they feel like it. Only God, in verse 13, acts and no one can reverse it. The false gods were always changing in rank and in power, and being replaced. And God says, I am no strange God among you. I am the one true God, and you are my servant Israel. And he says, I reveal myself to you. I saved you, and I proclaimed my power to you. And that's why Judah can be God's messengers to the glorious fact that he is the only God because he's full of miracles and full of grace in their lives. In fact, I was thinking the very existence of Israel is a witness to the sovereignty of God. I like how God even defines himself in terms of his relationship to Israel. Look at chapter 43, verses 14 and 15. He says, I'm your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. 15, I am the Lord your God, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. So that was his plan. 
that Israel was a nation created by God, for God, and to be his messengers of salvation to the nations. Only there was one problem. God's servant was not faithful. And I meant to put that next to the word problem on there, so write that on your outline. The problem, the unfaithful servant. And it really began the minute they got out of Egypt with Moses and they set their sandals onto the sand of the wilderness when they crossed the Red Sea, they began to make their first false god that quickly. Unbelievable. Moses is on the mountain meeting with God, getting the law, getting the standards by why, which ways that they can be blessed and be God's people, and they decide, we need a God. So everybody, let's pool our gold, let's melt our gold here, and while Moses is gone, they create a golden calf. And then they stand back and say, here is our God that brought us out of Egypt. A cow? Was it a cow? that brought the plagues to Egypt? Was it a cow that protected the children of Israel from the death angel when it passed over? Was it a cow that parted the Red Sea and then watched it come back over the Egyptians? Was it a cow that has been guiding them with a pillar of smoke and fire through the wilderness? Uh, 20 years ago, a movie came out called Hook with Robin Williams. Did any of you see that? Oh, good, a lot of you. Okay, so I took my son Tyler, and he was probably six, five years old at the time. And we were watching it. And this is a movie where Peter Pan is a grown-up man, and he finds himself back in Never Never Land, and he's got his two children with him. Well, at some point, Hook, the evil Hook, uh, kidnaps... Peter's 10-year-old son. So he has him on his ship, and he begins to try to raise his 10-year-old son as if he belongs to him. And so I'm sitting watching the movie, and a scene comes on when the little 10-year-old son, first he resists Hook, but then he starts giving him his loyalty and giving some of his heart to him. And the scene, the little 10-year-old boy comes on the ship, and he is dressed exactly like Hook. And he's listening to Hook and, and laughing with Hook. And all of a sudden, I, I feel this. And I look down at, at little Tyler, and he says, I have to leave. And I'm like, and he's, his face just looks terrified. And I look back at the shot on the, I think, am I a bad mom? Is there something really bad going on here? And there's no monsters and no killing and nothing scary. And I'm like, Okay. So we go out into the lobby, even though I'm confused. The minute we get out into the lobby, Tyler looks at me and bursts out crying. And he says, that little boy is starting to believe that Hook is his dad. And it was so very sad to him that he could not watch it. It is so very sad that God, who loved Israel, finds them turning their back on him to claim and give their loyalty to gods that have meant nothing to them. It is so very sad. In fact, when I was working on these lessons, God was 
good enough for one second. You know, I don't think we can feel what that felt like to God. But for one second, he let me feel it. And I mean, I just started crying at the counter. It was so overwhelming to me what that would feel like to God. Think of your children if they turned from you and said, this is my mom and dad. Think if you did that to your mom and dad. This is God and the nation he formed and created that he loves and calls his own. The sin that began in the wilderness would one day lead them back to the wilderness when they found themselves crossing the borders in a foreign land of Assyria and Babylon. Look at chapter 42, verse 18. Here's what God has to say about that. Hear, you deaf, look, you blind, and see who is blind but my servant, Israel, and deaf like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but have paid no attention. Your ears are open, but you hear nothing. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious, but this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. I thought it was interesting how this first starts. God calls them deaf and blind. Do you remember last week in our lesson what Judah was calling God? You don't notice us. You don't notice us here in Babylon. Our ways are hidden from you. They were basically calling God deaf and blind. And so God now takes their accusations and puts it back on them. No, you are deaf and blind. Deaf and blind to the realities of the one true God. This also came as no surprise to God. Listen what Moses says in Deuteronomy 29 on your verse sheet. Moses summoned all the Israelites and said to them, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all the land. With your own eyes you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. And what that means is he didn't give them that mind and eyes because they weren't asking for it. They weren't seeking God. And then he says, Your children who follow you in later generations and foreigners who come from distant lands will see the calamities that have fallen on the land and they will ask, Why has the Lord done this to the land? And the answer will be, It is because the people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, the covenant he made with them when he brought them from Egypt. They went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them, gods that they did not know. God saying in these verses, Hear, see, wasn't my law great and glorious? The Mosaic Law said this. If you follow God's standards, you will be blessed. Your children will be blessed. The land will be blessed. And if they had done that, all the nations around would have seen the righteousness of God by the blessing of Israel. And in that sense, 
the law was great and glorious because it would be revealing to others the salvation for all mankind. But if Israel chose not to follow God's laws, we see from Moses they would be driven out of the land. Where do we find them right now? Assyria and Babylon. Everything that Moses told them would happen. Their cities looted and plundered. They found themselves trapped, imprisoned, no one to deliver them. This is the result of a servant rebelling from a merciful master. And I believe Isaiah purposefully used wording that they would have used for a caravan trying to cross the desert. And they're stopped by robbers and cruel thieves who beat them and take all their provision and take their water and then deprive them of their liberty and put them in their caves. And there's no one that even knows they're there. No one to save them. That's the picture of Israel. Were they in this position because these nations were so powerful? Look at verse 23 in chapter 42. God says, which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Wasn't it the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So we poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war, and enveloped them in flames. Yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. God wants Israel to realize it wasn't the power of your enemies that overcame my plan for you. It was me disciplining you and judging you for your sins. I warned you about it from the very beginning, he would say. But Israel has sinned by disobeying and refusing to walk in his ways and disobeying his word. So the result was this dispersion of Israel the violence of war, God's judgment through Assyria and Babylon and other wars, and even after Christ had risen in 70 A.D., Jerusalem would fall again to Rome. During their exile in Babylon, we see God's children behave still as someone else's children. Turn to chapter 43, verse 22. They're in Babylon, and God says, You've not called upon me, Jacob. You've not wearied yourselves for me, O Israel. You've not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I haven't burdened you with grain offerings or wearied you with demands for incense. You have not bought any fragrant calamus for me. That would be like a sugar cane that they would burn, and it would have a sweet aroma, sweet fragrance to God. You have not lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. Now God's saying here, when you were in Babylon, I didn't expect you to do the sacrifices. You didn't have the temple. But you wouldn't even sacrifice your time to call out my name. You didn't even call on me. You didn't pray to me. You were weary of me. And I love that God says, not I was weary of you. He says, I was weary of your iniquities and your sins. In Babylon, they still did not understand God's great love and plans for them. In fact, he's saying in these verses, Babylon was a sign of God's judgment. 
When King Nebuchadnezzar came to get them, he burned the city down. We just read fire, a sign of God's judgment. They didn't even get that. So while they're in Babylon, they're still thinking, why? Oh, why are we in Babylon? But they're not calling on their creator, the one who created Israel, to ask him that. Look at verse 25 in chapter 42. It says, even though they were enveloped in flames, they did not understand. They were consumed, but they did not take it to heart. So here's the point. Israel didn't understand or take to heart God's lessons of repentance. That's what he's hoping will happen. Repentance. And so these are very sad words about the unfaithful servant Israel. And this is how Israel has responded to the discipline of God throughout the centuries. And this is a sad place. If we had to stop here, we'd all go home and just sit and eat ice cream or something. This is the pivotal point where God says, I'm going to introduce you to my faithful servant. It's a bright spot. For Israel, it's a bright spot for us because the faithful servant would open the eyes of Israel and the faithful servant would be God's messenger into a lost world. And as God's servant, Jesus would do what Israel did not do. He would carry out the will of the Father so that people everywhere may believe in this Holy One of Israel. And so he is the provision. So right next to the word provision, the faithful servant with the capital S. When you see the word servant in our homework and in our reading, you have to look real closely because it can mean a number of servants. It can mean Israel. It can mean Jesus. It can mean Cyrus who delivered them from Babylon that God used. So um, we always try to make that pretty clear. But Jesus is the faithful servant. God promises the Messiah for release from spiritual captivity. Look at verse four, chapter 42, verse 1. God says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. And we learned last week that islands means the remotest places on earth. It means all the people in the earth. This is the first of four servant songs that refer to the Messiah in Isaiah. It's a song about Jesus' first coming. And God is the one who presents him to us. And he's very happy to do it. We learn four things about God's relationship to his faithful servant in those passages. One, that he upholds him. That means to hold fast. And I think we see, when we look at Jesus' ministry in the New Testament, constantly he's going to God. I thought about his beginning of his ministry, how he has to meet Satan in the wilderness. It was God upholding him during that time. I thought about Jesus in the middle of his ministry, constantly teaching, healing, traveling, praying, discipling. How could he do it all? 
God was upholding him. I thought about him at the end of his ministry as he faced the cross. How could he do that? God was upholding his faithful servant. We learn, secondly, that God chose his faithful servant. He was perfect. He was in perfect communion with God the Father and the Spirit. Together they were the Trinity. And God delights in his faithful servant. And the correct translation is, he's the one in whom my soul delights. I have a friend that loves to tell the story. She loved God so much, delighted in Jesus so much as a little girl, that she said she used to run around out in the fields, her dad was a wheat farmer, and she'd run through the wheat, and she changed the words of a hymn. She didn't realize she changed them, but she would sing, I'd rather have Jesus than you. And she'd sing to everyone, I'd rather have Jesus than you, uh, which was kind of funny, but it showed how much she delighted in him. And she's still like that today. She delights in him. God delights in his faithful servant. You think about when he was baptized. And the voice of God coming down and saying, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I thought about when Jesus took Peter and James and John to the Mount of Transfiguration. It was a high mount. They were away from everyone. God comes down. Jesus is transformed into this brilliant white. He's talking to Moses and Elijah on the mountainside. You can imagine what Peter and James and John were thinking about this moment. And all of a sudden, again, that voice, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then fourth, God equips his faithful servant with his spirit. And we saw where that happened at his baptism. And the dove came, and it says it actually landed on Jesus. A picture of God's Spirit on him. And Jesus says that this Spirit from God was without measure in his life. Look on your verse sheet at John 3. Jesus said, The one whom God has sent, speaking about himself, he speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit to him without limit. And here is the servant's task that God assigns to him. Jesus is to bring justice to the nations. And justice implies all that a nation needs to bring about God's salvation. And we can see one thing's clear here. It's not just to be confined to his children Israel. It is also to bless and reach out to all the nations. And we know that Jesus, in a sense, completed this mission by his first coming his redemptive work on the cross that he did for you and I, offering God's salvation to all men while he paid the penalty of their sin. Look at Romans 10 on your verse sheet. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For there is no difference between the Jew and Gentile The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he will completely fulfill his task 
of leading the nations in righteousness when he gets on his throne in the millennial kingdom and reigns in righteousness and brings justice to all the nations. And what I loved in those passages, too, was seeing the character of the faithful servant. It's not the character of the unfaithful, disobedient servant Israel. It is not the character of Cyrus, who we learn from history was an arrogant, proud man who really didn't know God, but God used him as a servant to conquer Babylon so Judah could be released. A faithful servant has the most amazing characteristics that Israel would have never thought to put on the Messiah from God. He will accomplish his task in humility, kindness, and courage. He won't shout or raise his voice in the streets. And what that means is he won't be a loudmouth. He won't be the kind of person that likes to draw attention to himself and is argumentative and defensive and throws their weight around. Jesus is so certain of the task that he has, he just knows the message will carry itself out with power. So he walks in gentleness and meekness. It says that he will not... um, Oh, I wanted to mention this. I thought, too, about Christ right at the point of the cross. How evil man, in fact, Israel, would spit on him and yell things and abuses at him. And God, in Christ, did not retaliate and did not hurl back insults. At them. He would not raise his voice in the streets. Then a bruised weed, reed he won't break, a smoldering wick he won't snuff out. Okay, have you guys ever seen a broken reed where it's just sort of dangling there? It takes very little to break the rest of it off. A candle that's just about out of its wick, just about to go out. This is a picture of people that are damaged by life's harsh experiences. And Christ's dealing with them is to be tender and show tender care. I love that. I thought about the woman that was caught in adultery and the Pharisees and the other um, Jewish leadership came and threw her in the dust on the ground in front of Jesus' feet and said, what are you going to do with her? We caught her in adultery. And how Jesus just loves on her. The other people are so humiliated by his tenderness that they have to go home. And Jesus presents a new future to her, forgives her, and sends her on her way. I thought about Mary Magdalene, filled with demons. Probably about that little light she had left in her life, about to be snuffed out. And the tender love that Christ had for her was so amazing that she followed him all the way to the cross all the way to his tomb and got to be the first person to run and tell the fact that he had risen from the dead. The tender care of the Messiah. And then it says, he will not falter or be discouraged. Those verbs um, are the same as the verbs used when he talks about the broken reed and the candle coming down. And what that tells us, for the first time, we get a little hint that the faithful servant of God will be a suffering servant. 
Nothing that the Jewish nation would have ever imagined. They would have liked an arrogant king. But Jesus will bring justice and salvation to the nations by being tender and caring and courageous. He will persevere for the sake of the mission at hand. And these next verses, 42.6, I love uh, picturing them. It's really like God is standing next to his son and he's getting ready to send him out to battle. Look at verse 6. He looks at the servant and says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in the darkness. So God is saying, your calling comes from me, and I'm passing it on in righteousness, which means The purpose of salvation is in mind. That's what happens to us. We become righteous through Christ. And then God is holding tightly to his servant's hands to strengthen Jesus for what looks like an impossible task. God is there to guard him from anyone that might try to stop his work. And then God speaks into Jesus' ears. You are to be a covenant for my people Israel. Jesus would fulfill God's covenant promises to Israel. And he would be the provision of salvation to Israel and the light of salvation to the Gentiles. In fact, remember Abraham, he was promised that his seed would bless the whole nations. That happens through Jesus Christ. He is the seed of Abraham that would bless all the nations. I was thinking about last week when we talked about Simeon holding Jesus in his hands when he was a baby in the temple. And remember what he said? He's looking at a baby and he says, My eyes have seen your salvation in Jesus. Salvation and a light to the Gentiles. And what does Jesus call himself during his ministry? The light of the world. And he says, anyone who follows me will no longer walk in darkness. He is sent from God to be that salvation for us. And so God would use Cyrus to release Israel from captivity physically, but God would use his faithful servant Jesus to release Israel and to release the rest of the world from their captivity to sin and the darkness that it brings to us. He has other provisions for Israel. Look at 43, verse 1. God promises to gather Israel together one day from all around the world. And these are the neatest verses. This is what the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you and summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they won't sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you won't be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you. I give men in exchange for you, and people in exchange for your life. 
Okay, these are some of those already, not yet, passages. This will be partially fulfilled when God releases Judah from captivity in Babylon. These will be perfectly fulfilled when that faithful servant Jesus gathers the Jewish nation that's spread all over the earth, the ones that have come to call on his name, placing their trust in Jesus, will reign alongside him in the millennial kingdom. Now, in these verses, we look back to considering them with Babylon. Even though the nation is still in spiritual captivity, remember, while they were in Babylon, a light bulb did not go off. Oh, we get it. We sinned. We can change. Instead, they were still in the darkness, but God releases them physically from their captivity. And I like it uh, that he uses these words, I formed and created you, Israel. Those are the same words used when God created man, when God created life and human beings. And it made me realize he was as intentional in creating the nation Israel as he was in bringing man to this earth and creating man in the first place. Then he speaks these words to... Um, Israel, that are so unbelievable to me. They demonstrate his great grace. It's like an intimate valentine that you almost don't want to open up. You are mine. You are precious. I love you. I call you by name. You belong to me. And I realized, you know, the only reason that Israel still exists is because of God's loving grace, which brought her into existence, and his grace, which continues to sustain her today. So we envision in these verses Israel making the trek uh, back from Babylon. There are waters, there are rivers, there are fire, there are flame, and I think we can look to the future, many centuries, and see these are a lot of the perils Israel has faced over the years and continues to go forward as they wait for the Messianic kingdom. We know, too, from history that Persia, after Judah was taken out of Babylon, they did come and destroy Egypt, which this verse prophesied about. Um, and he calls it a ransom. I found this, write this verse down, Proverbs 21:18 thought this was interesting. The wicked will be a ransom for the righteous. And that's what God does in these verses with Egypt. I want to read some more verses about them exiting Babylon. Turn to chapter 43. And we will look at verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Oh, I want to tell you this. This is the new exodus. Okay, when was the first exodus? Egypt, when the children of Israel left Egypt. This is the second exodus, when the children of Israel leave Babylon. Look at verse 16. This is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, he's talking about Egypt, who drew out the chariots and horses and army and reinforcements, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Dwell on the new things. God's saying, here's your next exodus, your exodus from Babylon. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? 
I'm making a way in the desert, streams in the wasteland, the wild animals honor me, the jackals and owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen ones, who I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Once again, Israel is passing through the waters. Once again, God is making his way. And I really believe the third exodus, again, will be in the millennial kingdom, where God makes a way for all his children to be regathered together in Jerusalem. And look at what he says in verse 21 again. Then they will proclaim my praise. These people that I formed to bring me glory and praise, they will proclaim and give me praise. What a wonderful thing. They will sing a new song. Turn to chapter 42. This is uh, right after God has formally introduced his faithful servant Jesus. Look what happens. Verse 10 of 42. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that's in it, you islands and all you who live in them, let the desert and its town raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory and proclaim his praise in the islands. The Lord will march out like a mighty man. He will triumph over his enemies. All praise breaks loose when the nations realize the salvation that comes from the faithful servant, Jesus Christ. All praise is rendered finally to the one true God by all the earth for his offer of salvation. And I love that Isaiah just wants us to think really broadly. So he talks about sailors, and he talks about desert nomads, and he talks about people who live on islands. He wants you to get the picture that Israel is dispersed in the future. But one day, he will bring them all back together, and they will all sing this new song. It seems like God has been silent, but he has been hoping for the salvation of Israel and the rest of the world. So his delay is our salvation. And the way of salvation is his servant, Jesus Christ. And I thought to myself, the story of Israel is our story too. God created you and I with the same plan in mind, that we would be his that we would represent him in a dark world, that we would take the reality of him out into the dark world, and that we would be who he wants us to be, those that he loved. But then we had the same problem of Israel. We sin, and our sin and our rebellion has kept us from knowing our creator. So we can laugh and think, gosh, Israel, you've been so blind and deaf. We were blind and deaf. We were blind and deaf to our calling. Until Jesus offered us the opportunity for salvation. And we accepted it when we realized he died for us. We believed and we confessed that he was God's servant of salvation. And so when we read that song, one day we will be gathered with all the saints. We will all be singing and worship this new song of salvation. And guess whose voices we're going to hear? Israel's voices. That's what they were created for. And God says, one day that is going to happen.
We had the privilege of being in Israel a few years ago and got to be in a room they believe is the upper room, people from every nation in there. And we began to sing, I believe it was Amazing Grace, and another country began to sing it in their language and another country in their language. We filled up that whole room. We weren't saying the same words. It sounded like one thing, worshiping God together all the nations, one day, that's what it's going to be like. And Israel will be singing with us. Meanwhile, we are called to be God's servants while we are here on earth. We're to sing our song. Sing our song of salvation to people we come in contact with, to people he puts in our path, to people that we go to tell about it. And our reason is so they might know the one true God. That is God's plan for us. While we wait, look at this last verse on your verse sheet. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, The Lord is exalted. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We see in these stories, in these realities, the reality of your grace and your love for us. May you equip us to be tender, caring, and courageous in this world that we may be a light for the one true God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lynn. A few announcements before we leave. Today is the newcomer's lunch. So if you are new to Bible study as of this January...